You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. All right. Well, good evening. How's everyone doing? Well, <clears throat> well I'm excited to be here uh, with you tonight. Uh, so as I was driving over here, I was trying to remember if I've ever preached at Overflow before. And a couple of people said, yeah, you have. And I think I have. But it was like years ago. So I don't think, has anyone ever heard me speak at Overflow? I'm just curious. Anyone at all? Okay, cool. They all graduated. All right. Has anyone ever heard me speak at all? All right. A few of you have. Because look, I've seen some of you wearing my Follow Me shirts, which I'm really excited. I actually have a Persian brother in the house with me today named Armon. And uh, so he, he would love to see that Follow Me shirt. So... It says, everyone can see that, right? And No, okay. All right, so how many Farsi speakers? Anyone? Uh, kind of. There we go. All right, good, good. All right, well, enough of that. So I'm excited to be here. As you heard, I pastor a church in Frisco. My name is Afshin. I used to travel uh, and preach a lot before I uh, took over the pastorate at, at, at Providence, and so when I would travel and preach, when, whenever I'd go places, they'd be like, man, how do you say your name, Afshin, whatever. So I'm going to help you out really quickly. If you've heard me speak ever, you've heard me do this. I'm going to help you out so you don't call me like, you know, Saddam or something after this. All right, here we go. So Afshin, all right, you just think of the hair product, which I know you all love, Afrosheen. Anyone know what I'm talking about? All right, Afrosheen, all right. And then you take the R-O out and you got my name. So Afrosheen minus the row. Let's practice it on three just so we can get out of the way. Again, it's not about me, but just so you know, you don't call me, you know, Osama or something. Here we go. So Afshin on three. What? What's, everyone's like, you can't believe he said that. All right, so here we go. Afshin on three. One, two, three. Afshin. No, not Afrosheen. Afshin. All right. All right. You, okay. <laughs> okay. No, this time have more fun with it. Stretch out the een. Here we go. One, two, three. Afshin. Isn't that fun, right? So, all right, my last name is Ziafat. Just don't call me Izafat. Oh, okay, I heard that all my life. Or Chia Pet or something like that. All right, so here we go. So I grew up being called the Turban Cowboy, which was my favorite thing, all right, in Houston, Texas, right? So I had the, oh, all right, we got some H-Town. All right, here we go. So I had, I had Texan and, and Iranian mixture there. So it was really fun. And so when I would travel and speak, it was really fun when if someone had never seen my picture on the internet or whatever and I'd show up, usually they send someone to pick me up with my name on a sign. Makes sense, right? You've seen that before at the airports. And so I'd walk off the plane, and this happened to me all the time. And I'd walk over, and by the way, they're kind of squirming holding up my name. Like, are they embarrassed or something? Should I be offended, right? Like, if it was Michael Jordan, they'd be like, yeah, I'm picking up Michael. But Afshin Ziv, they're like halfway holding it up. So, anyways, I'd walk over to them, and I'd say, oh, hey, I'm Afshin. And usually I'd get a response like this, like, oh. Well, you look like us. And I'm like, yes, I'm from this planet, you know. And then, man, it dawns on me that I think people think I walked right off the boat and kissed the sand. I'm in America. And the next day decided to be a Christian speaker, right? So here, here's the deal. In case you saw Afshin Ziafat and you were wondering what in the world, you're expecting me to come off a magic carpet or something. That, this is who you got, all right? So, yes, I, I'm from an Iranian. What's the deal? Everyone needs to chill out a little bit. I can make these jokes. I'm Iranian, all right? You guys are all looking at me like, I can't believe he's saying these things. All right. We just need, I know, I'll be PC, but just come on, let's just get this out, all right? So here's the deal. Uh, no, but, but I wanted you to get a little flavor of, of, of what it was like traveling and preaching for me. So I do come from an Iranian background. My parents were Muslim. I'll share a little of my story. I actually was going to come and preach to you about God's will, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to preach something totally different, but it's going to be about God's will still anyways. Because anything, anything I preach from the Word is, right? Amen? So that's kind of where we're going. I really honestly just was praying, Lord, what would you have? And, and, and the Lord really changed my heart. And in fact... The last song and, and, and the last thing, actually, that was said from the stage um, by Jared really kind of said, man, this is where I'm going with it. He, he just had you guys all bow your head and pray and, and think on, okay, do you really believe these words that we're singing? And if you really believe these words that we're singing about God and about Jesus, then, then how, 
how should that change the way we live our life? Or let me ask it this way. How do you know if you really do believe? I mean, because belief isn't just a mental thing that, oh, I check a box. Oh, yeah, I believe that there was this guy named Jesus, and I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and, and just a mental assent to these truths. Belief actually ought to impact your life and change the way you live life, change your priorities, change your perspective, right? change your mission in life. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the gospel, And I want to talk to you about how the gospel, when I say gospel, I mean the good news of Jesus Christ, how you know that gospel has really intersected your heart. So if you would, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Did I say chapter 5? I meant chapter 1. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All right. Let me give you a little background. Uh, Let me first pray, and then I'm going to give you a little background, and we'll jump in. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you that you've given us your word. And Lord, I I just pray, Holy Spirit, I know that you've just kind of laid on my heart a a shift here. So I just pray that that, that what you have for me here uh, to share, Lord, would be of you truly, that you would guide my heart and my words, and that you would speak, that I would decrease and I know I was talking about my name and how to say my name, and ultimately, Lord, everything about tonight's not about my name, but your name. So, Lord, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase, Jesus, that you would be magnified through your word, that you would open our eyes to see truly what it is that you desire from us, what you're calling us to. And, Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word today, but doers of it. I pray, Lord, that as you promise that your word goes forth and accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent and that it does not return void, I pray, God, that your word would fall on fertile soil in our hearts and would produce fruit. I pray for someone here who may not really know what it looks like to follow you, that you would open eyes to who you are and open hearts to genuine faith in you. We need you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me give you a little background of what's going on here. So Paul had come to Thessalonica and preached the gospel there, the good news of Jesus, and there's a small band of believers that's formed. And this young church, uh, just a very small church, is formed, and he's preaching and preaching, and ultimately the Jewish religious leaders become jealous of Paul. That's what the scripture says in Acts. And they actually come and drive him out. They form a mob and drive him out of Thessalonica. Now he's getting so much persecution for preaching the gospel that not only did they drive him out of Thessalonica, they actually followed him to the next town, Berea, and they drove him out of that town also. So Paul is thinking, man, if I'm getting this much heat for preaching the gospel, what about the young church that I left behind in Thessalonica? So he's worried about their spiritual state. So he sends his young disciple, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to check on the church there. And Timothy comes and he meets Paul at Corinth. And he brings a report that not only are the church, not only is the church in Thessalonica still believing in Jesus, but man, the word of God is going forth from them everywhere. And so Paul pens this letter that's called 1 Thessalonians in our Bible as a response to the good news that he heard back from Timothy. And listen to what he writes, and I think you get a lot of what it looks like if you really got the gospel. Look at this. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, 
Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I think this is one of the most amazing passages of the power of the gospel. So I read a lot there. Go back to verse 4 and look what he says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And look what he says in verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So look at me. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, now, some people get the gospel just in word. So think about Jesus' parable about the sower with the seeds. Remember that parable when he says some, some of the seeds that the sower falls, uh, throws on the ground fell on rocky soil. And those were the ones that, because of the joy over the word, they immediately sprung up to life. But as soon as the wind and the sun beat against it, it withered away and died because it had no root within itself. So it proved that they weren't really Christians. They got excited about the word for about two weeks or so, but as soon as the heat came, they were out the door. And so here's what he's saying. I know that's not you. I know you didn't receive it just in word, but you received it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's how I know it, because it moved you to full conviction. And now he's going to show what does full conviction look like. And that's what I think the rest of the chapter 1 was. So let me walk through, how do you know you really got the gospel? Here it is. Look up here at me. Everyone look up here. Here it is. How do you know you really got it? It starts with the gospel. And if you really got it, verse 9, I'll start with first. You turn from idols to serve the living God. That's what happens. If you really understand the gospel, you will turn from false gods and give your life to serving the real God. And then what happens, not just repentance, but then, verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, for you received the word. So here it is. How do you know I got the gospel? Here's how. You turn from idols to serve God. You become a follower by his word. Then the next stage, if you will, verse 7, so much so that you became examples In other words, look up here again. Here it is. You got the gospel. You turn from idols. You become a follower, so much so that others are now following you. You have become an example worthy to follow now. And then the last stage, I believe, verse 8. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. You became a missionary. And by the way, when I say stage, I don't necessarily mean that these all have to happen in order. You become a missionary the day you become a Christian. But what I'm saying is I believe what he's laid out here isn't chronological order necessarily, but he's laid out the fruits of full conviction. This is how you know you got the gospel. Repentance has happened. You become a follower. You become an example. And the word of God goes out from you. And so that's my question for you today, is just to look at your heart, and for me to look at my heart and say, God, speak to me, and where am I maybe not showing this fruit in my life? And so it all begins with the gospel. And so I want you to grab a hold of this statement. I really believe a proper understanding of the gospel is fuel for radical discipleship and radical mission. Let me say it again. A proper understanding of the gospel is fuel for radical discipleship, radical following after Christ, and radical mission. But it starts with a proper understanding of the gospel. And that's what he says here. He says, because our gospel came to you. And I'm going to tell you, until you really understand the gospel, you're not going to see the rest of this happen in your life. It starts with understanding the good news. And when I say the gospel is good news, I mean first you've got to understand the bad news apart from Christ. Because you only know how good the good news is if you know the bad news. So listen to this. If you go to Ephesians 2, you don't have to turn there now. You can trust me and look it up later. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Listen to this. He says that you were dead in your sins and your trespasses before Christ made you alive. So the first thing you need to know, by the way, if you're here and you're saying, well, well I don't believe in Jesus. Well, listen, I, I, and don't kill me. I'm just the messenger. Here's what the Word of God is saying to all of us. That all of us are sinners. In our nature, we inherit a sin nature. And because of that sin nature in rebellion against God, we are born spiritually dead. That's what the Bible says from the very beginning when Adam and Eve were told from God that, man, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. 
And essentially, Adam and Eve bought the lie of the enemy. The enemy comes in the form of a serpent. They're in the garden in Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible. And he basically says, God told you you're going to die? No, 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 no. God knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll become like him. And so this is the lie of the enemy for you. If you're not a Christian, hear me. The lie of the enemy is this. If you really believe in this God and follow him, you're going to miss out on something. He's holding back from you. And it's always his lie. And he's duping us into, into biting the lie and going after death. And so what happens? Sure enough, Adam and Eve eat, and the Bible in Romans says, from that moment, sin and death spread to all mankind. So all of us are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. You are, ready? All right, got your intention, right? You are spiritually flatlined at birth. So it makes no sense for me when someone says, oh, Afshin, man, I was a Christian from, from birth. Really? Wow. You were the first one, right? Right on the delivery table. I mean, it was no one is born a Christian. Everyone is born in sin, separated from God. And by the way, it doesn't just say that you're sick in your sin. A sick man can go get some medicine or go see a doctor. Sick man can do something for himself. It says you're a dead man. A dead man can do nothing for himself. And that's what the Bible wants us to know. Your situation is so grave that there's nothing you can do for yourself. Someone must make you alive. And so you're dead. Not only that, it goes on in Ephesians 2 to say that you're dominated by your flesh. It says not only that, but you were carrying out the desires of your flesh like the rest of mankind. So the Bible says I'm dead, but on top of that... I am controlled by my flesh, my bent away from God's will, to do whatever my flesh desires. People say, man, Jesus comes to set you free. Well, what, did, what does freedom look like? What did, he came to, what did he come to set you free from? Because listen to me, he didn't come to set you free so that you can go do whatever you want now. In fact, he came to set you free from doing whatever you want. You're enslaved to doing whatever you wanted to do. And Jesus came to set you free so that you can do what he desires for you, which gives you true satisfaction in life. And man, not only that, not only were you, were you uh, a, a, a dead and, and dominated in your sin, but the Bible says you were destined. Ephesians 2 says you were by children, uh, by nature, excuse me, children of wrath. That doesn't mean that you're wrathful. It means this, and you're going to think, man... Are you, did you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? Are you just, I'm not in a bad mood. I want you to get the bad news. It means because we are sinners in rebellion against God, if God, listen to me, is a righteous God, a just God, he must punish sin. So the Bible says we are all deserving of this punishment. And God has made a way. God has made one way to save us from our sin and yet maintain his justice. And that way is Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 3 that God gives him up as a gift to be received by faith. And he gives him as a propitiation. Big word, let me explain. Propitiation is a sacrifice that is offered that bears the wrath of God and thereby turns the wrath of God into the favor of God for anyone who believes. And he's done this so that, Romans 3 says, he could be just and justifier. In other words, he can justify you in his love, but also maintain his justice. That means every sin that you commit, are you ready for this? When you believe in Jesus, every sin that you commit is paid for at the cross. He's a just God. He doesn't just brush sins under the carpet. Every one of them is paid for. And yet in his love, he's made a way to, for us to be saved. Now I'm telling you this, look. If you got that, a Muslim says to me, man, if we're saved by grace, not by what we do, then why would you live for God? You can go do whatever you want. <laughs> you don't get grace. If you get what has, I've just explained for you, that we were dead, we were destined for wrath, but God in his love made a way by laying his own son down to pay for our sins at the cross. If you really get that, you're not going to go do whatever you want. You're going to say, man, I give my life to serve you. You're not getting a free breath mint on the way out of a Mexican restaurant. 
okay? That's not changing anybody's life. I'm not going to turn around and go, whoa, you gave me a free breath mint? I'll wash dishes. I'll do whatever you want me to do, right? That's not what you're getting. Here's what you're getting. It's more like you're dying of a rare disease, and there's no cure for it, except some scientist in a faraway land has concocted this one cure that cost billions of dollars, and some rich man has sold all of his possessions to purchase this one vial, and he comes and gives it to you for free. Now, how are you going to respond? You'd fall at that person's feet and say, I'm at your service. If you say that you would just go do whatever you want if it's by grace that you're saved, you don't, get what, you don't understand what you're getting for free. And so I'm saying if you get it, that's the first step, the gospel. And it, man, let me tell you, it, it, it will fuel radical discipleship and it will fuel radical mission. I'll get that there in a moment. You would be willing to lose anything for it. So the second step is that you turn from idols to serve the living God. You know what that means? That means anything that is number one in your life, that's your idol. The thing that you pursue, the thing, the one that you want to make happy most, that is your idol. But when you understand what God has done for you, you'll lose it all. It's like the, 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 when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as being like a man who finds a treasure in a field, and he buries it in the field, and then he sells all of his possessions to purchase that field. In other words, when you understand the treasure you're getting in Christ, you would be willing to lose anything for it. That's why over and over again in the Gospels, I find Jesus making sure that people get the Gospel. And so he says stuff like this. You have to hate your father and mother, wife and children, and even your own life to be my disciple. You must forsake all that you have in order to be my disciple. That's pretty strong language. Hate? Does God want us to hate our family? No, of course not. He created the family, but here's what that means. It means that even that relationship with a family should not come between you and following Christ. And even that would be like hate compared to your love and your devotion and your commitment to following Jesus. And so over and over again, he wants to make sure, do you understand what you're getting? I often say it this way, like in college, I went to the University of Texas, and when I went there, I was pre-med. I was Smoking something. I don't know what I was thinking, all right? So I went pre-med, and here's what they do. That first semester chemistry class and biology class are weed-out courses. You know what I'm talking about, right? They make those classes so stinking hard because they want to know if you have what it takes to go all the way to the end and get your degree. If you're going to flunk out, you might as well flunk out in the first semester and save their time and save your parents' money. It's a great concept. They're weeding out the duds, if you will. See, we think... Jesus just wanted people to jump on his bandwagon. When I look at scripture, I find Jesus over and over again holding up. No, no, no. Get off my bandwagon if you don't know what it really looks like to follow me. So he turns to his disciples and he says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And this is something I didn't understand when I first became a Christian. And so I was born in Houston when I was two. My family moved to Iran when I was six, the Islamic Revolution hit that country, and we moved back to Houston. And there was a second grade tutor who loved me in a time when a lot of people didn't like Iranians. And she poured herself into me and taught me English. And in the second grade, she hands me a New Testament. And she said, you're not going to understand this book, but promise me you'll hold on to it and read it when you're older and you can understand it. True story. Second grade, she gives me a New Testament. I take it home and throw it in my house, and I grew up a Muslim, not just any Muslim. Uh, my dad was the president of the Islamic Medical Society in Houston, chairman of the board of the Iranian Islamic Center. So he was a very prominent Muslim, okay? So all I ever was taught was the five pillars of faith of Islam, that I had to do those five pillars of faith. Don't worry if you don't know what those are. But I had to do all these things in order for God to accept me. It was taught that Jesus is just a prophet. So my senior year in high school, I became curious about the person of Jesus, Several things happened in my life, and God put that New Testament on my mind. Going, you know, I think i got a Bible somewhere. And if you can believe this, 10 years after that second grade tutor gave me that New Testament, I'm looking all over my room, and I find it at the bottom of my closet. And I open it up, and I start reading in the book of Matthew. And I read, and I read, and I read the whole book of Matthew in one sitting. Now, I didn't understand it all, but God just developed a hunger in my heart. Every night, under the covers, with a flashlight, I would read so my parents wouldn't walk in and find out what I was doing. And finally, I got to the book of Romans. 
And chapter 3 changed my life. A couple of weeks after reading Romans chapter 3, I gave my life to Christ, and I hid my faith from my dad for a year and a half. I would sneak out to go to church. Uh, yeah, I would literally tell my parents I'm going somewhere else. Put, you used to have to get dressed up for church. I don't know if you remember those days. So I'd put my nice clothes in my car on Saturday night, go change at a restaurant on Sunday morning, change into my nice clothes, go to church. First thing I would do is pray, God, forgive me for lying to my parents, and then hear the gospel <laughs> over and over again. Somehow God uses it. I don't know. So anyways, a year and a half after hiding it from my dad, he finally found out. And he sat me down, and he goes, what's going on? I go, Dad, I'm a Christian. He said, excuse me? I said, I'm a Christian. He said, no, you're not, young man. You're a Muslim, and you'll always be a Muslim. And I said, Dad, the Bible says if I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, then I'm a Christian. He says, Afshin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. And that's when it first nailed me, man. Here's a God I've known for a year and a half. Here's my dad, my entire upbringing, my hero. And I want you to know everything in me wanted to say, forget it, man. I'll be a Muslim. I didn't want to lose my dad. And I share that so you know I'm not boasting tonight. Because even I was shocked when my mouth opened and these words came out. I said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. My dad disowned me and said, get out of my face. I walk upstairs to my room, fell on my face, and I said, God, how could you do this to me? Seriously, I dare you to pray this honestly to God, by the way. I said, God, how could you take my dad away from me? And the Lord so clearly spoke to me, opened the word. And I turned in Matthew chapter 10 and listened to the words of Jesus that I read right after my dad disowned me. Listen, Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me, I'll disown him. Then it goes on to say, do not suppose I come to bring peace, but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father. And I'm reading this going, whoa, <laughs> that just happened for me. A daughter against her mother. A man's enemies with the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, idols, for my sake, will find it. And I'm telling you, this is how you know you got the gospel. You say, man, I'm willing to lose it all. Romans chapter 1 through 11, all of it is telling you all that God has done for you. And then Romans 12, 1, one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible, says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. The word there for reasonable is actually logical. Look at me. Here's what it's saying. It's saying if you have a right view of the mercy of God, the only logical response would be to lay your life down for him. If you're not laying your life down, then you are thinking illogically. Or you don't have a right view of the gospel. And so I'm just telling you, what are you holding on to? that stands between you and following Christ, that is the idol that I think is keeping you from the life Christ wants you to experience. And so I'm not perfect. Every day I have to die to myself. A couple of years after my dad disowned me, he took me back, but only as long as I'd go be a doctor and make him proud. And so now I had a new idol. Okay, God, I've already crossed the Christianity bridge with my dad. I'm not going to disappoint him. I'm going to be a doctor. But guess what? God called me to do something else with my life. And I ran. No way am I going to go be a preacher. No way, God. And my sister writes me a letter. She had become a Christian. And she says, Afshin, you're running from God to please Dad. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And she says, Afshin, a Christian out of God's will is like a fish out of water. He will struggle until he's put back in the water. And everything in me was struggling. And she quoted 1 John 2, 17. The world and its, desire, and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. There, I'm already talking about God's will. There it is. And so, I'm telling you, I said, I got it. And I went and told my dad. And he again disowned me. He told me to get, and listen, he was going to pay for my entire medical school, and I was going to take over his practice and be set for life. The other way, I had $4 in my pocket. Didn't have a job, but only had my first semester's tuition promised by my church to go to seminary. And God opened door after door after door and gave me a nationwide speaking ministry for so many years, a free place to live, by the way, 
This man paid for my entire seminary degree that found out about me. All these random things. All of these, not random, God's hand. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. What's amazing is on top of all that, today I'm part of a ministry where I get to go into the Middle East and train Iranian men and women. I'm going there next month. Train Iranian men and women who've come out of Iran and feel called to ministry, and they go back into Iran and plant underground churches. So today I could be a doctor and have my dad proud of me, but I would have missed the life Christ had for me. And that's what I'm saying. Some of you holding on to this idol are missing the life Christ wants you to experience. And so look, I spent more on that than I thought, but I needed to. So stay with me. Are you still with me? Say yes. Yeah? So you get the gospel. It leads you to say, okay, I'm losing all for this, to serve God. Okay? The next step is you become a follower. Look what he says here in verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And by the way, why does he say that? Why does he say you became imitators of us? Because look at me, guys. That's how discipleship works. You become an imitator of someone who's a little bit further down the road in a spiritual journey with Christ, and then eventually you start imitating Christ, and then someone's imitating you. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So here's what discipleship looks like for Paul. Paul is saying, I'm going to imitate Christ so closely that if anyone were imitating me with their life, they're essentially imitating him. And so I, when I say it's college students, and I think most of you are here, but listen to me, you have got to be involved in a local body, following other seasoned veterans, watching the way they do their life. That's the way God set it up. But then it says you became followers of us and of the Lord, for you received the word. And I want you to see this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Go to the right and look at verse 13. I love this. Look what it says. Verse 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. So here's what he's saying. Look here. Look here. This word we preach to you, we're so thankful that you received it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, listen, which is at work in you believers. And I'm telling you how God has guided every step of my life. I, I'm, I'm, I, may, I may be the only weird one, but I haven't, I haven't had a vision. Uh, maybe one time I had. I haven't had a lot of people say to me, this is what God wants you to do. I'm not saying he can't do that. For me, God has guided me by his word. My time in his word is how God has spoken to my heart and, and moved me. And I'm telling you, you're, you're in college. Listen to me. If you, you say, how do I know I got the gospel? Here's how you know. You would abandon anything for Christ and you would submit your life to this word. Not to what you think it ought to say, but to whatever this word says, I'm going to live my life by it. And I'm going to let God guide me by this word. Isaiah chapter 30, let me just say this and we'll move on. Isaiah 30 says this, and I think every college student needs to know Isaiah 30. Listen to this. Woe to my people who make plans for their life without consulting me. Who go to Pharaoh in Egypt to ask the advice of Pharaoh in Egypt. Therefore the advice of Pharaoh in Egypt shall turn to their shame. Then look at this. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says this. But... Blessed are those who wait on the Lord. And that waiting doesn't mean that you just sit on your hands and say, okay, God, drop the, drop the next step in my lap. It's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. It's like the waiter who's waiting on a table, whose eyes are on that table, who's attentive to serve that table. That's what that idea means. When you are waiting on God, not passive, you are actively in his word, waiting on him. And then it says in verse 21, you will hear a word in your ear saying, this is the way, turn in it, when you go right or left. And so I listen to me. I have, I have made plans for my life. And God's sovereign, but I've made plans for my life without consulting him, and it's led to shame for me. But I'm telling you, when I've followed him, and most of the times it's been a crazy step. Are you serious, God? He's been there. He's provided for me every step of the way. So you become a follower by his word. And by the way, let me just say this. In the Middle East, there are many Muslims coming to Christ by dreams and visions. It's amazing. 
And you know what's awesome? Is I come back and, um, well, this part may not too awesome. A lot of Christians here will say, man, why don't we have more dreams and visions? Man, maybe we don't have faith as much as they do. Let me tell you something. Dreams and visions, I believe, are prevalent in places where the word of God is not. But can I tell you something? I've met some, with my eyes, I've met people who've come to Christ through dreams and visions, and I've looked at their Bibles, and it is being devoured. They have, like, notes on every page. They don't want more dreams and visions once they come to Christ. They want the word. And it's amazing. We want their dreams and visions. We have, we have the word so readily available for us here. I'm not saying dreams and visions are bad. I'm not saying that they don't want it at all. But I'm saying ultimately they want the word. And so we should get in the word. Let me say two more things when we're done. Are you still with me? Say yes. Yeah? Yes. Okay. And then they became examples. They became examples. And this is the part you're probably not going to like. Because the way they became examples, look at it. In verse 7, it says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So verse 7 says, So that you became an example. But you got to see, what is a so that? Go to the end of verse 6. You received the word in much affliction. So friend, hear me. You're not going to like this part. But let me tell you when you're going to become the greatest example worthy to follow. Not when you're following Jesus, when everybody around you is excited about following Jesus. Not when you're following Jesus, when everything is going good in your life. Let me tell you when you become the greatest example. When you follow Jesus... When things are going bad in your life and everyone's deserted you and you keep following him, that's when you become the greatest example. And so I'm telling you, look, and in fact, look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians 2.14. Go back to 2 and look at 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, that means the Greek, as they did from the Jews. In other words, you suffered from the Greeks just like they did in Judea. That's how you're becoming an example. And so I'm telling you, look at me, guys. How do I know I got the gospel? Here's how I know. Look up here. You will lose idols to serve God. You will follow him by his word. And when hard times come, you don't rail your fist and bail. You say, God, I don't know why this is happening, but I trust you. Somehow you're going to do something through this. 1 Peter 4.19, let those who suffer according to the will of God continue doing good as to a faithful creator. Meaning when you keep following God, when hardship comes, you are declaring to the world around you, I believe he's faithful. And I love how Paul says this, by the way, in the book of Philippians. He says this. He says he tells the Philippians this, that my chains you might think are hindering the gospel. Look at me now. My hardship you might think is hindering the gospel. He says this, no, no, no. Actually, my chains are being used to spread the gospel. And you know what he says? It's been known to the whole Praetorian, the whole imperial guard, that my chains are in Christ. Let me tell you who the Praetorian was. They were 9,000 of the most chosen elite men in Roman society. That's, they were called the Imperial Guard. And you know what one of their jobs was? Whenever there was, there was a notorious prisoner, they would be chained every four or five hours. They would take turns being chained to that prisoner. You want to spread the gospel? Look at God's plan. Take 9,000 of the most chosen men in Roman society and one by one chain them to the Apostle Paul. You think they're going to hear the gospel? Yeah. He's like, you think these chains are hindering? No, no, no. It's on the contrary. God's using it. So many stories like that. Let me tell you, a couple that we uh, came through our ministry, Maryam and Marzia in Iran, spread New Testaments, thousands of New Testaments throughout the city of Tehran. And Maryam and Marzia were arrested. And they were put in jail. I can't remember, for like 259 days they were in jail. And finally, because of pressure put on the government, they were finally released, okay, and they're out of Iran now. But, you know, you might think, well, man, they're spreading these New Testaments. For 259 days, they were stuck in jail. Man, God, what are you doing there? Man, the, the gospel was being hindered, right? You ready for this? I heard that the next day in the newspaper, the Iranian government actually had an ad in the newspaper with a picture of these Farsi New Testaments that these girls were passing out. And literally, with big block letters, 
don't read these books. Free advertisement, man. Everybody wanted to get their hands on these red New Testaments. So you think my chains are hindering the gospel. No. See, here's the thing. When you really got the gospel, you don't look at suffering as a setback, but as an opportunity. You start to say, what's God going to do through this? Let me tell you, in my life, and then we'll get to my last point and be done. One story on this. In my life, I went through a dark period when my wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, my, my girlfriend at the time, broke up with me. Hey, it turned out well, right? So... <laughs> And I uh, had a lot of struggles in my life that I, God was dealing with. My ministry was really just kind of being sidelined for a period of time. And I would wake up with cold sweats and panic attacks for about two weeks. And I used to never talk about that dark period of my life. The only way I made it through was by clinging to God's word. Well, a couple of years after that, my non-Christian brother, living in Los Angeles, has an autistic child, has a lot of stress on his life, calls me out of the blue, and he says, Hey, Afshin, you used to have panic attacks. And I'm like, yeah? And he goes, well, I had one last night. And I remember somehow you, you had them and you got through it. Can you tell me how you got through it? And here I am with a bunch of my college students. I'm like, hey, let me finish lunch and call you back. So I finish lunch with my college students, tell them to pray. They pray. Call my Christian sister. Remember her? Yeah. Call her. Tell her what's going on. Tell her to pray. Before I get off the phone, she's like, hey, tell them about Jesus. I'm like, well, duh, right? So anyways, <laughs> but, but it kind of tells, I mean, it kind of shows my lack of faith because I kind of was like, what's this one time going to do, right? I always tell them. But I was humbled. I'm like, what if this is my brother's time? So God, forgive me. What would you have me share? And right then, God gave me four verses to share. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make a request known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. The verse where he goes out in the deck of the boat and he says, Peace be still to the storm. The verse where he says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for today has its own troubles. Consider the lilies of the field, how God clothes them. All those verses. So I call my brother. I go, What happened? And he tells me. And I go, Well, bro, until you get your heart right with God, you will never have peace in your soul. And he goes, Oh, whatever, dude. And I go, Well, man, hey, God gave me four verses to share. Can I share them with you? Power of God's word. Look at this. He goes, Sure. I share those four verses, he crumbles. Right there on the phone, he's like, dude, I need Jesus. And then he says, what do I need to do? Now, I'm an evangelist. What do I need to do is like your dream question, right? <laughs> but for a second, I was so shocked. I was like, I don't know. What happens next, right? So I go, Romans 10, 13 says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And right there on the phone, my brother goes, I call on you, Jesus save me. So listen to me. Not only, not only, look at this, not only do I have another sibling who's a Christian, but eyes up here. God took the darkest time in my life and he redeemed it. And he used it for good. So listen to me. Suffering comes. This is how you know you got the gospel. You keep going as to a faithful creator. And then the last thing, and you guys just got back from Beach Reach, so maybe I don't have to preach this one so much, but if you really got the gospel... It's going to call you out. Look what it says in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is what I love about this. In other words, not just in your little corner are they hearing about the gospel, but man, people are being sent out. I, I take that to mean the gospel is going out to all regions. And look at me, guys. If you know, here's how you know you got the gospel. The gospel is by its nature a sending gospel. If you get it, it, it pushes you out of your comfort, out of your cliques, to go to people who maybe you'd be uncomfortable being around. People who don't look like you, dress like you. All right? Eat the same things, talk the same language as you. That's so what the gospel does. It calls you out. Every from the beginning, God comes to Abraham, leave your father's country and go, and I'll make you a great nation, he says to Abraham. And then through you, you, you'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So you had to first get out of your comfort zone, leave your dad behind. I get that, Abraham. And God's going to do something through you to reach all the families of the earth. Jesus in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. And maybe all the Jewish Christians were pumping their fists. Yeah, we get that. Then he says this, but I have sheep that are not of this fold. And I must draw them also. 
In other words, it's not just for you. Go. And then in Acts 10, Peter preaches to Cornelius. And look at this, man. They received the Holy Spirit. Gentiles. Talk about a Jewish man. Talk about a divide. Preaching to a Gentile. And they receive the Holy Spirit, and he baptizes them. And when he goes back to Jerusalem, the Christians back home at the base camp actually rebuke Peter. How dare you preach to Gentiles? Can you believe it? And he goes, look, if they receive the Holy Spirit in the same manner that we have, who am I to stand in God's way? And I love one of my favorite verses in Acts. The church fell silent and they glorified God because they understood the message of the gospel was not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile, even for our enemies. And here's how I want to close our time. If you stay with me like five more minutes and we'll be done, but I got to get all up in your face about one last thing in love. Can I? Is that cool? Y'all good with that? All right, here we go. Why in the world are we even here as Christians? If you're a follower of Christ, why has he left you here? I mean, it's unbelievable to me. I think sometimes we forget why we're here. John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, and he says to them, by the way, first of all, let me go back to John 16. He says to his disciples that people are going to arrest you and bring you before the rulers and authorities, and some will even kill you thinking they're doing a service for God. So the disciples were not under any illusion that life is going to be easy for them. And in John 17, he says, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. Because you might be thinking, well, man, if that's coming for me, let me retreat. And he goes, no, no, no. Just as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. And I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you know that's why God has called you here? Not to be comfortable and safe, but to go out and tell others this mission. And man, I wonder if we forgot that. And a couple of things happened last year that make me wonder if we as Christians have forgotten. And let me tell them to you really quickly. In Farmersville, Texas, I don't know if you know where that is, just a few miles up north from where I live in Frisco, and I'm not trying to bash the whole community, okay? It wasn't the whole community, but there was a group, there was a a pocket of Christians that were all up in arms... Because the Muslim, uh, the Islamic Association of Collin County wanted to build a cemetery there in Farmersville. And there was a pastor who actually stood up in the middle of that, that, that community and said, we got to put a stop to this cemetery. If the Muslims build this cemetery, then more Muslims will come to our community. And I'm thinking, why are you a pastor? A pastor ought to stand up and say, church, I got great news. The Muslims are building a cemetery in our backyard. That means more Muslims will come and we can actually live out our calling. And so guess what? One pastor was brokenhearted in that community and held a town hall meeting and asked for Afshin Ziafat to come share his story to these people. It was very interesting. I'll tell you about that later. Anyways, then the Syrian refugee crisis hits. And I listen, I don't want to get political about Hey, what is Trump saying? What are the other people saying? I'm not going there. Let the government, for me anyways, let them decide what they're going to do with the borders, okay? I'm not trying to make a political statement with this. Here's what I am trying to say. The Christian heart that wants safety more than opportunity just is bewildering to me. And I, again, I'm not saying, look, look I, okay, so let me tell you what happened. They called me to go to Washington, D.C. and sit on a panel, all right? It was the head of the ERLC, Russell Moore, someone that works with World Relief, a guy from the State Department, and Afshin Ziafat, Iranian-American pastor from Texas. I don't know why I was on that panel, but here we go. So there, and he, we were going to talk about a Christian response to the refugee crisis. And let me tell you what I said to them, and here's what I said. Sitting on Capitol Hill, I said, guys, men, women... I said, here's the deal. I'm an American, and I want my government to protect me. I don't want terrorists to get in here, and I want them to do whatever they can to protect us, protect our borders. I, so hear me say that. And so again, I'm not talking about whether or not what, what they're doing policy-wise. I'm talking about if someone from a Muslim country comes to your community, how should I as a Christian respond? And i got to tell you, I can't let safety be my number one concern. I've got to look at opportunity. And so then I share my story. 
I go, I was in Iran, revolution hits, and we moved to this country. And I wasn't a refugee necessarily, but we were escaping the turmoil of Iran to seek refuge in America. And there was one Christian lady when the Iran hostage crisis hit, when a group of Americans were held hostage in Iran, and a lot of people hated Iranians, and people came against my family, one Christian lady looked at my family and didn't see threat, but saw opportunity. And she was hired by my parents to teach me English, and she handed me a New Testament, and today here I am preaching to you because of her. And so I'm saying to you, man, we can't think safety first. Paul in Acts 20, I'm about to pray, I promise. Paul in Acts 20 says this. Listen, he goes, I'm going to Jerusalem. Look at me. And I know suffering and imprisonment await me. And he knows what you're going to think. Well, why would you go to Jerusalem then, Paul? You know suffering and imprisonment awaits you there? Affliction? And he goes, almost like he knows they're thinking that. He goes, but I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself but only that I finish the course of the ministry God has given me. So what Paul is saying is, hey, you might think I'm nuts, but here's the deal. There's something more important to me than my safety. And it's my mission. There's something more important to me than my life. The goal of a Christian should not be to extend the number of my days on this earth by all means possible. The goal of a Christian should be every day you give me on this earth, let me spend it fulfilling this mission. And I'm telling you, we can't applaud missionaries who are being sent to go into very dangerous places with the gospel. But as soon as those places come to our neighborhood, we want to board up our windows. Doesn't make sense. And so I'm saying this. I'm not making a political statement about the, about the borders or any wall, okay? I'm saying this. Whoever comes from my community, I'm called as a Christian to get out of my comfort zone and go. And so that's how you know you got the gospel. Why? Because Jesus stepped out of his comfort zone into my broken world and was beaten and rejected. And he even looked at his disciples and said, I'm going to Jerusalem, same city, to suffer and die. And they said, this shall never happen to you. Peter did. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And so I'm just wondering, have we forgotten the things of God? If safety is our number one thing, then I think we have. Mission should be our number one thing. And that's how you know you got the gospel. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.